0: Uh, If an alien visited planet Earth and spent a week in Sydney, I reckon they might return home and report that one of the things that we're most ambitious about here on planet Earth in this city of Sydney is learning to manage our time. Uh, When people ask us how we are, we often use words that describe how full our lives have become. Oh, I'm really busy, flat out, under the pump, I'm exhausted. When people ask us what we hope for or even what we'd like them to pray for us, we often respond by saying we'd simply like to find a way of getting everything done we've got to do. We'd like to develop some better time management skills. And there's a whole industry now that exists to capitalise on our time management quest. People have made millions writing books and developing courses and spruking strategies, all designed to help us be better managers of our time. And, of course, the implicit assumption of this quest and this industry is that time is something we're able to master, something we're able to control. So often we operate with this conviction that our lives would be better if only we could be lords of our time. I wonder if you've ever stopped to think about what God might make of all of that. Perhaps you have. Perhaps you've supposed that God would prefer that our lives were a little less... And anxious. That may be true. But what about that core assumption itself? Does God think we can master, control our hours and days? Would God agree that being lords of our time is an achievable ambition? I want to suggest this evening that Ecclesiastes 3 at the very least asks some pretty searching questions about that assumption and I'd like us to spend the next little while considering why that is. This chapter is mostly a chapter about time, and I'd like us to consider it under the three headings that I've got on your outline there at points two, three, and four. Time and human activity, time and eternity, and then time and judgment. We begin with the poem that we find in, in verses one to eight, probably the most famous verses in Ecclesiastes. There's a time for everything, and a season for every activity under the heavens. Now, he's not saying here that everything is right, that there are no wrong or unholy activities. It's significant, I think, that none of the things he lists in these verses are inherently sinful things. And as we'll see later in the chapter, the teacher believes there are such things as just and unjust actions. There is righteousness and wickedness. But what he is saying here is that there are seasons in life, seasons of making and developing and nurturing things as well as seasons of unmaking and unravelling and ending. Uh, The teacher says that there are appropriate times for many things, even things that might seem on paper to be opposed to each other. He wants us to know that it's too simplistic to talk about human existence simply in terms of life when human existence also includes death. It's too simplistic to talk only about laughter when there are also tears. And he wants us to know that we can't reduce God just by using one side of some stark duality as if he's for life and peace and joy and as if, well, death and conflict and sadness, they must come from someone else or exist under someone else's sovereignty. The sovereignty of God over time is the assumption that undergirds this whole chapter. There's a time for everything and a season for every activity in God's world under God's hand. God is the Lord of death as well as birth. He rules when his people weep as well as when they smile. His reign extends over hatred as well as love. He is king in the midst of war just as he is king in the middle of peace. Most of the opposites that he lists in this poem make some sort of sense to us. We know that life begins with birth and ends in death. We know that the natural world thrives when people plant things in one season and uproot them in the next. It might feel like a difficult issue for us with our modern sensibilities, but I hope you also know that the Bible is not categorically opposed to all killing and all war, but that alongside God's insistence on the sanctity of human life, there are also in God's good purposes times for violent justice. The one in verse 5 about scattering and gathering stones I suspect is pretty foreign to us. It probably refers to the ancient practice of covering a field with stones to stop it producing crops and conversely clearing a field of stones so that a crop can then be planted and harvested. The rest of them I think are not really foreign to us at all. We, we know there are times when a hug is needed and times when it would be inappropriate to touch someone. We know there are times when it's good to laugh and times when it's right to cry. We know too, although we're not particularly good at it, that there are times to speak and times to keep our mouth shut. We understand these things with our minds and I think we understand them in our experience as well. And the perspective of these verses is a perspective we find right through the Scriptures. The Bible acknowledges from the beginning to the end that there are different times for different things. Human existence is a tapestry of different activities and different moments. Each day and each year are different to the one before. Uh, Life under the heavens is certainly not boring. Secondly, time and eternity... In verses 9 to 15, the teacher turns again, I think, to the themes that we encountered last week in chapters 1 and 2 and I hope you've had a chance to listen to Jasper's sermon if you weren't here. Verse 9 says this, you'll hear the echoes. What do workers gain from their toil? I've seen the burden God has laid on the human race. He's saying in the midst of different times and seasons, the meaninglessness of life remains and that's a burden that people have to carry. And then we get verse 11, which... I think is an amazing verse he says he's made everything beautiful in its time he's also said eternity in the human heart yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end let me let me just unpack that verse with us for a moment in the first place he's saying that God has made everything beautiful in its time again I think it's an observation about timeliness rather than some moral judgment but I think his point here is simply to reiterate and Affirm the perspective that he gives in verses 1 to 8 in that poem. Everything has its proper place in God's world. At the right time, many, many things are beautiful. He's saying again that whilst birth is beautiful, at the right time, death can be too. Whilst laughter is beautiful, there are such things as beautiful tears. And whilst love is beautiful in obvious ways, there's a beauty in righteous hatred in its proper time too notice what else the teacher says in verse 11 he said he's also set eternity in the human heart so not only are there appropriate times for a rich variety of things in human existence there's also a sense he says deep in every heart that life real life is bigger than the times we inhabit on the earth That that sense of eternity, of life beyond our time, if I can put it like that. That sense may be being suppressed in people's lives or ignored or uh, rebelled against, but in the hearts of all men and women, Ecclesiastes says, it's there. And that too is a very vital thing for us to grasp because if our hearts are made for life beyond our time as well as for life inside our time, then that'll have all sorts of implications for how we use our time now. And again, the teacher will flesh out a little bit more of this as the chapter continues. But the last thing I want you to notice about verse 11 is that he wants us to grasp that this complex combination of time and eternity in the hearts of people creates a kind of confusion. He says we cannot fathom what God has done from beginning to end. Knowing there is a time for everything and knowing that there's also eternity only really serve to remind us that God is beyond us and that his understanding is beyond ours the relationship of beauty in time and eternity in hearts is in a very real sense just unfathomable to us there's there's much that he and and we just don't know but says the teacher there are some things i do know he goes on in verse 12 i know that there's nothing better for people than to be happy and to do good while they live that each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all their toil, this is the gift of God. He knows that if everything is beautiful in its time, then happiness and doing good and eating and drinking and satisfying work, these are all expressions of God's kindness. They may not be the source of ultimate meaning, but nevertheless, they're gifts to be enjoyed. But secondly, he says something else he knows, verse 14, I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it. God does it so that people will fear him. Whatever is has already been, what will be has been before and God will call the past to account. So eternity means that the work of God, he says, outlasts time as we know it and it's not at the mercy of human interruption or change and the work of God in the world is done, he says, so that we might learn what God is like and might come to respect and honour him. Now, now that's a pretty incredible thought, I think, there in verse 14, that, that while he's at work all through the world in ways understood and not understood by us, his purpose is full of grace. He wants us to know him. He wants to show himself to us. And then verse 15 kind of leads us into the theme of the final section of the chapter, what I'm calling time and judgment. And and here in this last section, the teacher adds to his reflection on time, this all-important moral dimension. Because he said that there's a time for everything and that everything is beautiful in its time. It's important for us to see that he's also prepared to say that some things that take place in this world are unmistakably wicked. And and that too, I think, resonates with our experience of human existence. Verse 16, I saw something else under the sun in the place of judgment, wickedness was there. In the place of justice, wickedness was there. And as he thinks about that, it leads him to reflect on God's judgment, the, the perfect justice of God. Verse 17, God will bring into judgment both the righteous and the wicked, for there will be a time for every activity, a time to judge every deed. Notice how he uses the language of time there in a new way. In verse 17, he's talking about there being a time when every activity will be weighed, when it will be assessed by God. And and every deed that has made up that colourful tapestry of human existence will receive its proper judgement. And that, of course, is essential for every person to understand if they want to live wisely in the world. We don't exist in time or act in time without accountability. Our times now need to be lived in the light of that time then if we're going to be wise. Now, many sadly do not live that way. Many live as if this time now is all the time there is, they live as if there's no accountability for how their time is spent how they act, for what they do. And the Bible teaches us, as it does again here, that that's a tragic foolishness. And since you and I see that foolishness in the world all around us every day, it ought to trouble our hearts every time we notice it. Because there will be a time for every activity, Ecclesiastes says, a time for every deed to be judged. A time of accounting. And in verses 18 to 21, he kind of connects that time of judgment with the day of death. He points out that in respect to death, all of God's creatures are the same. At one point, we're all breathing, but then there comes a time when every creature, humans, goldfish, giraffes, all stop breathing. We return to the dust. Time on this earth does not go on indefinitely. For every one of us, it ends. We know not when. And this too is part of that burden of meaninglessness that God has laid upon our shoulders. And that's why I think the chapter ends as it does in verse 22. He just says, So I saw that there's nothing better for a person than to enjoy their work because that is their lot. For who can bring them to see what will happen after them? It's good to enjoy our work, he says, savor the times we have because they won't last. And then after this life, something new will happen to us, something we can't yet see. There's time now, he's saying, and there's time to come. And and we need to live as best we can in the intersection of those two realities. That's what this chapter is all about. It's about learning to live in God's times the times He's given now and the time to come. Now I hope what's obvious to you is that these are God's times more than they're ours. He's the Lord of these times. And that realisation renders our constant striving to master or control our time a little silly, I would have thought. Time is not something we can ever really gain mastery of. Of course, it is possible for us to use our time wisely or foolishly. It's possible for us to use our time productively or frivolously. And So there's wisdom in our desire to manage time well but we must remember our limitations. We mustn't kid ourselves that we can become the Lord of our time. Someone else already got that job. Our task is to learn to live in harmony with the time God has given us. And as we finish, I want to point out three key components to that. So firstly, this is at point five. Living in God's time means knowing what time it is and seeing its beauty. This chapter reminds us I think that simply running ahead with our own agenda will often mean we end up being out of step with the times that we find ourselves in and instead we need to be aware of what's going on around us in the world and chiefly we need to be sensitive to what's going on in the lives of the people around us. I hope that is clear to you from verses 1 to 8 particularly. You, you don't want to uproot while someone else is planting. You don't want to laugh in the face of someone who's grieving. You don't want to be helping someone search for what they've lost and discover that they feel like you've given up too quickly. You don't want to speak when someone else needs you to be quiet and listen. There's a time for everything and our responsibility is to live harmoniously with each moment that we're in, seeing the beauty of what each moment calls for. And that's why I think we could also add some things to the list that we've been given in verses 1 to 8. You know, There's a, there's a time to stay at 5pm, even though it's your kids' feeding time, and there's a time to move to 10am. There's a time to work late, and there's a time to come home to your family. There's a time to clean the house and there's a time to sit on the couch and watch Netflix. There's a time to tell someone that you've been hurt and to seek their repentance. And there's a time to silently bear with your frustration and disappointment. There's a time to discipline a child sternly and there's a time to laugh at their cheeky behaviour. There's a time to get married and there's a time to separate from a spouse. There's a time to keep working and there's a time to retire. There's a time to quietly pray for a needy friend and there's a time to pick up the phone and ask them how they are. There's a time to try and work through your own issues yourself and there's a time to go and see a counsellor. There's a time to do some more thinking and there's a time to bite the bullet and make a decision. There's a time to vote for the political party you've always voted for and there's time to vote for a new one. There's a time to endure a complex and stressful friendship and there's a time to bring such a friendship to an end. I could go on like that. You could come up with some sentences of your own. You get the idea. In God's world there are many different seasons and moments, all of them beautiful in their own way and minute by minute we need to see what this beautiful moment is that we're in right now and to embrace it. That's the first thing. The second thing Ecclesiastes 3 teaches us is that living in God's times means accepting what God gives. And he's given us a few things. You see the little boxes on your outline there. The first thing I want to mention is that is what the teacher refers to there in verse 10, that God has given us a burden. And that burden is having to live with the reality that some of our times are hard. And, and a life marked by unavoidable difficulty, as our life is, is a life characterised by the kind of meaninglessness that Ecclesiastes is looking to point out. I think there's a kind of sad resignation in this chapter. It it doesn't depart from a a trusting sense of God's sovereignty in everything, but, but nevertheless, I think there's an undercurrent of grief here, which is right and true, because things like death and war and fruitless work and broken relationships and sorrowful tears, those things are all genuinely painful whilst they can all be beautiful in their own way in the right moment, they're they're nevertheless part of the brokenness and frustration of life under the sun. And this chapter encourages us to resign ourselves to that frustration and to expect those pains. One of our common problems, I think, as Christians is that we adopt the expectations about life that are carried by the people who live in the world around us without assessing those expectations in the light of the Scriptures. And so we sometimes find ourselves, don't we, expecting life to be happy, seeing things that are hard as some annoying aberration to what's normal, and then perhaps feeling disappointed with God that he's let us down. But but that train of thought is just a product of unbiblical thinking. So we need to hear what the teacher says to us here. Uh, We need to hear what he'll go on to say as well. In, In a later section of Ecclesiastes, he says this, when times are good, be happy... But when times are bad, consider this. God has made the one as well as the other. That's Ecclesiastes chapter 7 verse 14. That is biblical thinking. He rules in everything. He's in charge of every experience we have. He's not just the God of birth and laughter and love and peace. He's the God of death and weeping and broken relationships and war. few other things too because the chapter also reminds us that God gives us limitations Jasper reminded us of this last week that this book is a bit like a battering ram that breaks down our pretensions and and particularly here the, the teacher reminds us of the limits of our own understanding there are things we can know but there's so much we don't And and that too is a reality we need to accept from God's hand, not one I think we find very easy to accept a lot of the time. We ought to humbly acknowledge, as verse 11 says, that living in God's times means not being able to fathom much of what God is doing. One writer puts it like this, he says, the teacher of Ecclesiastes presents us with a sovereign God who acts in ways fully calculated yet not calculable. The third thing the chapter tells us God gives us are gifts to enjoy so he says we might have to live with pain and trouble and we might have to live with our limitations but we also receive pleasures and satisfactions from his hand they're not the meaning of life by any stretch of the imagination and they're not the resolution to the grief and confusion that comes with the burden we carry either but they are nevertheless things that make life easier and more joyful And once again, I think we're told this so that we will avoid falling into worldly thinking. We can, can't we drift into the suspicion that God's anti-fun, anti-pleasure, He's stern, He's dour, He's all about keeping the rules and He's probably not very pleased if we're enjoying ourselves. But that's not true, is it? God's the God of birth and laughter and love and peace. God made a time for those things. And he's the God, as verses 12 and 13 says, who gives us food and drink and satisfying work and good deeds to do and who makes us happy along the way. He's the one who 1 Timothy chapter 6 describes as the God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Now, if that's true, then there's some hard work we need to do at resisting some oversimplification, I think there's a fair bit of oversimplification that goes on in Christian circles. Perhaps like me, you've, you've sometimes heard Christians say, maybe even Christian preachers, that we should just give all our best time to ministry because that's what really matters. And they might say or imply that there's no time for rest or pleasure given the urgency of the gospel going out. On the other hand, you might sometimes hear people say that we should be a lot less busy because what God really wants from us is being still and contemplating him. And people might misuse the story of Mary and Martha, or they might misuse Jesus' teaching on seeking first the kingdom. They might distort other parts of the Bible, all all to get us to make one thing the sole focus of our lives. These are reductions of what the Bible actually teaches us, and they reduce God. In God's world and in God's word, there's a time for work and a time for rest, there's a time for ministry, and there's a time for other pleasures. There's a time for sitting at the feet of Jesus and just listening and there's a time for pouring your guts out so that people might enter the kingdom. There's a time for giving your best in the pursuit of excellence and there's a time for doing what you can and saying that's all that can be done. In my life, for example, God could be glorified by my grateful heart as I sip a glass of red just as much as he can by my zealous heart as I preach a sermon. I wonder if you believe that. That's what the Bible teaches, I think. And anything else is an oversimplification that we need to resist. The fourth thing Ecclesiastes 3 says God has given us is this hint of eternity And so while we accept the burden he's laid on us and our frustrating limitations and while we enjoy good gifts, living in God's time also means remembering that that judgment will come to us all. There's a time for every activity and every deed and so we ought to live life now as those who remember that we are accountable for every choice we make and every hour we spend. We might, as I think Ecclesiastes 3 encourages us, need to learn to live in the balance of work and rest, the balance of speech and silence, the balance of tears and laughter, but we are never called to balance concern for others and self-indulgence. One of those is righteous and the other is wicked. And as I suggested before, I think knowing what time it is has a lot to do With seeing what's going on in the lives of other people and seeking to love them. That's always the life we are to live as God's people and Ecclesiastes never commends self-indulgence. So whether I'm enjoying a glass of wine or preaching a sermon, I should seek righteousness. I should remember the eternity that God has placed in my heart and I should remember that there will be a time when every deed will be judged. And for those of us who come to Ecclesiastes tonight, so many years later, we're helped in this, I think, by knowing a little more than the teacher knew. He asks some rhetorical questions at the end of the chapter. Verse 21, he says, who knows if the human spirit rises upward and if the spirit of the animal goes down into the earth? End of verse 22, he says, who can bring them to see what will happen after them? I hope you're thinking about what difference it might make to us to know the person who can answer those questions for us. The very last thing I want to say tonight is to point out what's the third thing the teacher tells us about what I think it means to live in God's times, and it's this. We do live in a world that's marked by great injustice, we know that personally and I think we know it globally. And this is part of the burden that we carry. But the teacher reassures us here that as we live in God's times, in God's unjust world, we can still trust in his ultimate justice. That is a great encouragement to us. And as God says, verse 17... He will bring into judgment both the righteous and the wicked. Which reminds us, of course, that God's justice is not just for the wicked people out there, but for us too. And so it's right that our trust of him be coupled with proper fear as well. And that's where the book of Ecclesiastes ultimately wants us to land. Living lives rooted in the fear of the Lord And we hear that in these verses today. And so I finish with verse 14. He says, I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it. God does it so that people will fear him. I'm happy to take some questions. It's a chapter that might raise some for you. Mike. So the question Mike asks is uh, if this book perhaps was written by King Solomon and there are some reasons to think it could have been, Jasper covered a little bit of that last week Um, uh, is it possible that this was written right at the end of his life and perhaps what we see in the book are um, some latter life reflections of a king who was wandered from God and uh, who is not walking closely with him Um, it is hard to know I think Mike whether um, if Solomon did write the book and I think that's quite possible. Whether it was just sort of a reflection from the end of his life or a collection of things that he thought through his life, it would be hard for us to know that for sure. Uh, It's also possible, as Jasper pointed out last week, that perhaps this book captures um, some thoughts and writings of other people that are collected together under Solomon's name. That's also possible. I think uh, it's unlikely from my reading of the book that we should see... Um, a kind of a bitter spirit in the book, I prefer to describe it as a kind of a godly realism. I think there's, there's too much of God in these chapters to see it as the writings of someone who has departed from God. And obviously the conclusion of the book does press the reality of God's greatness upon us and the need to fear him and obey his commands. But I think, and this chapter is a very good example Um, There are references to God littered through the book and I think he is reflecting on what it is to live in God's world under God's hand. And so I don't see it in that kind of more uh, atheistic way that I think some people read the book or even kind of an agnostic or drifted way. I I see it as, as a man trying to wrestle realistically with what it is to live in God's world under frustration, not yet delivered from that frustration into the glory of the eternal kingdom. I hope that, that helps. It's a really good question and something for us to keep wrestling with as we go through the book. Uh, Pat, So Pat's question, just to repeat, is you know, do I have any wisdom to share on how do we kind of take uh, these thoughts to heart, appropriate them in a world which is very one-dimensional, very fast-paced, which seems to be all about getting as much into it as you can? Um, how would we kind of apply some of the nuance of this book in that context. I don't think I've got anything to say that's not absolutely obvious, (laughs) uh, which may be disappointing. But I I mean, it was great to hear in our 10am service this morning, um, some of the young people reflect on uh, their youth camp um, last weekend and think about uh, what what it is to have our sense of reality formed by the scriptures, by the God who made the world and who asks us to see the world his way as we read the Bible. That's, that's an obvious thing to say but I think really important is that I guess part of what I'm kind of heading towards tonight is that I think we do drift into um, reductionisms and oversimplifications of life and, and part of what we need is the Bible to keep helping us see life as it really is which will steer us clear of some of those errors on, on either side and we'll hopefully shine a light on how different the reality that the world offers us is to the reality of God's world and God's word. Um, I guess the other obvious thing I'd say, Pat, is that I think there's a key role for Christian brothers and sisters to play here in the fellowship. We read God's word in the context of our family and hopefully help each other to see these things clearly as we encourage each other to return to the biblical vision of life. Um, I I don't know if I'm answering the question in terms of really getting kind of very practical, but I I do think any good work we do in that space must come from a renewed mind that feeds a transformed life and I think we have a part to play in helping each other see that as we read the scriptures together. Um, Not sure that's helping, but I'll look forward to your sermon next week he? yeah i mean jesus still died didn't he um and so will we and there is a there is a time for death but it's because christ conquered death and removed its sting that death can be beautiful you know when i said before in its proper time even death can be beautiful that might seem a bit counterintuitive to us but if you've ever sat by the bedside of a believer in Jesus who's about to go to be with his Lord. Um, There's something remarkably beautiful about that. That's only possible because of Christ. It doesn't change the fact that there is a time to die, I don't think. It just makes the time of death, makes the possibility of the time of death being beautiful. It's what Christ's victory over death does for us, I think. Hmm. Edwina, is that a hand? Yeah, thanks. So the question is, um, yeah, yeah, let's say, for example, you can see beauty in death in certain situations. Is it really possible to see that in other situations? I think you used the word abuse there. Is that right? Yeah. Um, let me say two things to that. Firstly, uh, no. And I think one of the points I made when we were looking at verses 1 to 8 is I think it's significant that his list is a list of kind of morally neutral things or morally ambiguous things whereas later in the chapter he makes it very clear that there is righteousness and wickedness. So I don't think the author of Ecclesiastes is saying everything is beautiful, including sin and wickedness, things that are clearly um, abhorrent to God, like abuse. I don't think he's saying they're beautiful. Um, I, I think he's saying there's a, there's a time for many things, uh, but not that there's beauty in sin. Uh, nevertheless, I would say that part of what I think God gives to Christians in Christ is the ability to trust in God's beautiful purposes that actually can stitch together everything in life, including human sin, into a a tapestry of goodness. And it is possible for us to see how God might be at work in something that's patently evil and wrong and not beautiful to bring about a beautiful purpose. It's possible for us to trust in that but I don't think he's saying that everything under the sun is beautiful. I think he's saying there's a, there's a time for certain things. And again, when I sort of gave you my extended list, um, I was careful there to uh, avoid things that are, you know, clearly simple. Um, I think he's talking about moments for things, um, human activities that don't carry a moral freight with them. I hope that helps. Okay, I reckon that's probably enough. Uh, Feel free to come and talk to me. Uh, Keep discussing this with each other. It's a great chapter. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for the way your word corrects our wrong thoughts and offers to us a picture of reality in this world which invites us into conformity with it, harmony with it. And we pray that you would continue to renew our minds by the work of your spirit and through your word. We pray that you'd help us to keep encouraging each other to see the world the way you see it and to live rightly within it. Um, Father, steer us clear of simplistic reductions. Help us to feel the weight of these words and uh, to remember uh, the day of judgment which lies ahead. And we pray in Jesus' name.